Hello, my name is Claire and you are listening to the Hypno Birthing Podcast. Hello everybody and welcome back to the podcast. I hope that everybody is doing well. In today's episode, I speak to Melissa who actually runs a birthing center and also a wellness center in California. They actually have two two different locations. Um, But she came on to talk about kind of this idea of low risk in pregnancy and how we can do certain things with diet, exercise, our environment to help try to maintain that kind of low risk label. So obviously just a kind of a caveat in terms of like low, high risk labels. Unfortunately, we all get labeled as either one of those, which I don't always know whether that is the most helpful. Um, kind of seems like no matter whether you're you're low risk or not you you have some form of risk attached to you which is not always the best uh kind of place to be mentally when you're approaching birth but we do all get those labels so in order to kind of try and maintain that more low risk label obviously it does open up a few more options for people in terms of the type of birth that they want so we kind of spoke about how we can do certain things to help to maintain those labels Um, and then we also talked about for anyone that is high risk how you can still have you know a really kind of positive birth and how you can still do things that are gonna make that birth you know special and really positive for you as well i just want to apologize for my microphone in this episode it's not bad it's just that my microphone obviously wasn't connected properly um so my sound is just a little bit quieter and a little bit kind of rougher than normal Uh, but luckily I don't do much talking Melissa does most of the talking which is great so I just want to apologize before it starts but I hope you enjoy it I'll play it for you now so hello Melissa thank you so much for joining me if you would please introduce yourself good morning and good afternoon or evening wherever you are (laughs) um out there listening to us on this podcast I'm so grateful to be here and I'm excited to be chatting with you thank you Um, my name is Melissa Dean and I am a midwife and I am also the founder of Cost Natal which is two birth and wellness centers located in San Francisco Bay Area and I am a functional and integrative medicine practitioner and I combine my expertise in functional and integrative medicine together with my women's health practice and provide care in a collaborative and educational manner, just dedicated to wellness for women throughout the childbearing years and beyond. Amazing. Can you tell us what does, just so that people know, what does functional and integrative mean? What does that actually mean? Yeah, so um, functional medicine is looking at the root cause of illness. So we want to get to why... Most of, you know, through all, all of history, we've gone to see a practitioner about, oh, I, I feel unwell. How can I get better? And typically they give you medication to make you better. But we've learned that oftentimes that medication is masking symptoms, not actually correcting the problem. So functional medicine gets to the root cause of the problem. Why are you actually feeling unwell? What is the cause of your symptoms? And how are we going to correct that so that they go away completely and you don't have to maintain medication for the rest of your life? Amazing. Yeah, that 
Integrative is basically combining a medical practice. So Western medicine with functional medicine together. So if you need, you know, if you need medications or things like that, that can be added on in addition to the functional side. Amazing. And you're you're a midwife as well, which is great because I know midwifery in the US is not obviously as um, kind of common as it is here. We, you know, we're in the UK, we are mainly midwifery led. Yes. Um, and yeah, so I know it's not as much, although I do teach quite a lot of, um, US clients and I'm seeing more and more of them going down the midwife route, which is great. Yeah, I think, you know, just the the invention of the internet, more and more people are realizing that they have options and are wanting to have a a say in their birth experience. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I remember um, watching one, you know, that um, business of being born, that film, or I think it's called something to that. Um, And obviously that's set in uh, the US system. But yeah, I remember them just saying that, like, I mean, it was quite a while ago now, wasn't it? I think it was about 15 years ago, that, that film, but them saying that if you had a midwife, it was seen as so alternative. <laughs> what are you doing? Exactly. You have a midwife, whereas now, hopefully, it's starting to become a little bit more kind of normal. Um, yeah, people do still that. don't really, in the United States, don't necessarily all have a clear understanding of what a midwife is and what a yeah. midwife does, or what's the difference between a midwife and a doula. But yeah, uh, yeah I, I would say, you know, I think the statistic was 1% of babies in America are born by with a midwife. And now it's gone up to 2%. It's Great. double. Well, that's good. It's gone, yeah, it's gone up 100%. That's good. Yes. But yeah, so, so low still. But, you know, it, it's going in the right direction, at least, which is great. Correct. Um, so you are here today. We're going to talk about this kind of low risk. Um, actually, funnily enough, I was talking about this earlier when I was teaching um, about this kind of low risk, high risk um, thing and how actually quite often now for us here in the UK, many people are being given the high risk label for very kind of small reasons. You know, there's a lot that can give you that high risk label. Um, mm, that's super interesting. Know. Yeah. So kind of very small, you know, small things, but um, it's kind of more difficult now, I think, to not get given that than it is to have it you know which yeah um but can you talk to us a bit about so when we're talking about um this idea of low risk what does it mean in relation to pregnancy and childbirth yeah so i mean here in america basically it means that like we have criteria in california we have a license so we have criteria which stipulates what determines low risk and in our practice california midwives you have to be pregnant with only one baby um, your baby has to be head down position at the time of birth. Um, you have to have no major health complications, such, you know, no cancer, no major heart disease, um, no major hormonal issues, autoimmune issues, things like that. Um, your blood pressure has to be within considered normal limits um, and stay there. You can't be type 1 diabetic. Uh, or have uncontrolled diabetes, basically. Um, You have to give birth between 37 and 42 weeks. Um, Let's see what else. I think that's, those are the, those are the biggies. Do you go off them? Because one of the things um, over here is like age related. So if you're over 35, you're kind of high risk. I think, 
in technically in obstetrics here in America, they will cons- label you high risk if you are over 35, mm-hmm. but it just certainly does not risk you out of practice with a midwife. Um, okay. I think that, um, you know, if it's your first baby, even if you've done um, fertility treatment or IVF to get pregnant, we still take all of those yeah. women. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think just being over 35 here in America means you've just had more years of eating maybe a non an unhealthy diet. So maybe you're more at risk for high blood pressure. You're more at risk for diabetes. Um, you have a slightly increased risk for um, chromosomal abnormalities in your pregnancy, those kinds of things. But I mean, obviously, if we have someone who's over 35 and they're all healthy and well, and they don't have any of those complications, we keep them. I mean, yeah, I've had clients who are 45 and yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just fine. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it kind of is one of those things, isn't it? And I suppose that, that over here, like, because obviously we have you know, well, we, we do ideally have access to home birth and things like that, although it, it is dependent, unfortunately, a lot lately on like staff levels mm. and whether, you know, we do have staff to attend home birth. But in an ideal yes. world, we have access to those things. Um, and I think sometimes like being labelled as high risk, even if you are, you know, 35 plus one day old, um, you can sometimes feel like, oh, well, my options are going to be taken away and I'm going to have no choice but to be, you know, in the hospital, which isn't true. You know, you can still give birth at home if you are considered kind of high risk. Um, unless, you know, and I always say, like, unless it's obviously for a really serious medical reason, in which case yeah. you probably wouldn't want to anyway. Um, but for these right. kind of age related or like BMI related or something like that, you know, really, yes. you just got to assess the risk versus the benefit of doing it. And most oftentimes it will be absolutely fine to be at home. Um, I, I completely agree. I think also learning to advocate for yourself. If yeah. you're, you know, if you're 35 and six months or 37 yeah. or 39 yeah. or whatever age you are and you want to be at home, learning to advocate for yourself yeah. is is perfectly acceptable yeah I mean yeah pe- you know people of those ages you know really can be really really healthy I mean I'm nearly 37 and I'd hate to think that I would I mean I would be high risk but um you know I'd hate to think that they'd be like no you can't do that because yes. I'm really healthy I exercise a lot I have two young kids like running around after them all the time I kind of think Oh, I feel really like actually I feel a lot healthier and fitter than I did probably 10 years ago right because um, I think sometimes as you get older you look after yourself in a different way don't you a hundred percent yes a hundred percent I have clients who start out with their first pregnancy and they have a lot of morning sickness because they maybe haven't been eating as healthy as they right. should because they're just working a lot yeah, or whatever yeah. you don't take and then they yourself. have a yeah. child and now they're feeding their child on a regular basis and eating themselves yeah. and yeah. lo and behold their morning sickness goes way down that's so interesting wow I wouldn't have even really thought to relate those but of course like that would be related wouldn't it how interesting okay so why what are the reasons why it would be desirable to maintain this kind of low risk label throughout your pregnancy like why do we want to be low risk <laughs> Well, I think honestly, it's just avoiding interventions because, you know, as soon as you have a label attached, now you get on somebody's radar as, you know, wanting to monitor that. Because again, I I know here in the United States, 
you're putting yourself at risk for interventions because your provider, your doctor is feeling more at risk of being sued. Yeah. So they're feeling worried about having themselves in question. So they're going to go above and beyond to treat you with every intervention that they know, because in a court of law, basically here in America, they can say, well, I gave her a C-section. That was the best thing I could do. Yeah. Which, yeah. If you don't want that, you have to try to maintain as much health as possible. Yeah. And that would be the same here as well. I mean, I know we are a different system, you know, we're publicly funded, but it still actually works in a fairly similar way in that a lot of the time, you know, the interventions, they, it's um, money driven because we get more funding for more interventions. Um, so it's similar really. Um, and I think, if, you know, the same, nobody wants to be sued and lose their job. So, and, and I get that, like, I totally get that side of it. I do too. It's yes. The reason why it's done. Yes. And that's why I say learning to advocate for yourself. Yeah. And if you can take the, the risk away from your provider and say, mm-hmm. I understand those risks. I thank you for sharing them with me. I'm choosing to do it this way anyway. What yeah. do you need me to sign? Then yeah. you should be able to do what you want. Yeah. You're, giving, you're doing them a favor, really. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Responsibility away. Yeah. And right. Ultimately, it's our responsibility, isn't it? it you know, it's up yes. to us. I would like to think that. Yeah, I know. I mean, I think there's just been so many years of um, different messages. You know, we've kind of been brought up to believe that, you know, we can't necessarily trust our own bodies and that we should trust, um, you know, doctors and things like that. But ultimately, you know, giving birth is a totally natural, normal thing. So if you can get that trust back in, you know, in the process and in yourself, kind of a big way to actually I don't want to do that I want to do 100% yep yeah yeah 100% okay so what are your top tips for maintaining low risk yeah I think um first of all it, it all comes down to nutrition so at our very first appointment with our clients we spend time I mean a decent amount of time talking to them about what are you eating do you eat all food groups and If so, like, what does your breakfast look like on a regular basis? What do you eat for lunch? What do you eat for dinner? How are you incorporating healthy nutrients to not only grow a healthy baby, grow a healthy placenta, but also help your body to stay healthy throughout this whole process? You need to have enough calories to grow a baby, first of all, and protein are the building blocks of life. So protein is what creates a healthy and, you know, viable um, placenta. And protein is what helps grow a healthy baby. It helps with brain development. All the things that are important in growing a healthy baby come from protein. So we usually have our, you know, suggesting that our clients eat at least 80 to 100 grams of protein every day. And that means eating protein at every meal. Um, Strangely enough, it also helps with morning sickness. So having protein first thing in the morning will help you feel so much better throughout the day. It balances your blood sugar but it also just helps you feel more full and satiated throughout the day. So you're not having those rise and fall of, of hunger and blood sugar. So um, if you're eating a lot of carbs, which I know in first trimester, most people want to eat carbs. It's what we all crave and that's okay to have heavy carbs, just throw some almonds in throughout the day and add a little bit of, you know, if you can stomach eggs, eat some eggs, if you can, eggs are the best pregnancy breakfast for, you know, that, that I suggest. But um, yeah, when you're eating healthy, eating enough protein, it helps to balance your blood sugar. 
Um, so we generally are testing our clients A1C when they first come into care so that they have a sense of what is a three, this three month snapshot of my blood sugar. Am I low risk? Am I creeping up in the high risk category for blood sugar? That way, the very first time we check their labs, we're already talking to them about, oh, your blood sugar is great. You should just keep kind of doing what you're doing. Focus on the protein. You should be fine. Or if their A1C is a little bit higher, we're already suggesting that they're making changes in their diet and monitoring their blood sugar so that they basically can completely avoid that diabetic diagnosis. And that the, the test, that they do for the gestational diabetes is I mean it's not great on the body is it you know you're consuming a lot of sugar in one go yeah I mean to be honest with you it's no more than a soda which some people drink on the regular some people don't ever drink so again it's it's kind of a shock to your system if you're used to having sugar but um, we do it differently in our practice. We offer the fresh test, which is an organic lemonade. Yeah. Um, we also offer a postprandial so that they can eat food and come yeah. in and have their blood sugar tested after a, a meal. Um, but I yeah, it's... If, you're, if you're somebody that um, eat quite like healthily and quite clean the majority of the time, and then you do for some reason need to do that test and you are given something very sugary to drink, your body must like differently to somebody that is used to eating or drinking very sugary things I mean you're going to feel different just mentally and everything you're going to feel different but it's not going to necessarily make a huge change in your blood sugar because your body it's it's an automatic response yeah right yeah if you have high insulin in your system you're going to react differently than if you have normal insulin and you know it's so interesting because of course it all comes back down to food and nutrition and what we're putting in our bodies. But it's so, it's one of those things that's so missed. It's missed most of the time in those very first conversations that actually, yeah, are we, you know, are people looking enough at what they're eating and what they're putting in their bodies? Because so many of these kind of more minor issues like, you know, gestational diabetes, although I know that can, can be more serious, but gestational diabetes and things like that high blood pressure they can be avoided in the first place simply by taking check and making sure we know what we're eating and we're eating the right things and I think you know it's really common to not really understand nutrition so you don't really understand that um you know you for example uh, my east indian clients they Mm -hmm. they are vegetarians and they eat their native food And so their native food just happens to be very carb heavy. And if they're vegetarian, they're not getting enough protein. So their blood sugar tends to be a bit higher because that's just what they eat on the regular basis. And if they're 25 and they've been eating it, it's they're, you know, less at risk for diabetes versus if they're 35 and closer to 40. So we just have to help them understand that eating more protein Sure, you're vegetarian, but let's really talk about what sources of protein you can be eating. So we we get really creative on with my East Indian clients. We have a large East Indian community here in yeah. the Bay Area and trying to help them understand, like, even if you're doing protein shakes or something that so yeah. that you are um, getting enough protein and, and avoiding that gestational diabetes di- diagnosis. So, um, again, like eating their native foods, but at the same time, understanding how it all plays into their their system and um, raises their blood sugar. Because I also tell them, if you are positive for gestational diabetes, you will very, very likely, almost surely have type 2 diabetes when you get to be older. 
Same with hypertension in pregnancy. If you have hypertension in pregnancy or you're borderline hypertensive, you very likely will be on blood pressure medication when you get to be my age, you know, getting closer to retirement age. And um, it's just because that's years and years and years of the same diet is going to push you into that category. So understanding their, their wellness now when they're young and in their childbearing years makes a huge change for their overall lifestyle and moving forward into their overall health. Wow. Yeah, no, that's, that's so interesting. And I think, you know, maybe the difference, like I was just thinking for us, like in the UK, we definitely don't have those types of conversations when we go to our appointments. I mean, it's been a while since I was pregnant, but I I think the most that we kind of get is maybe a sheet, like a printout, yeah. with some information about nutrition that most people probably just go whatever and chuck it in the bin yeah, um, yeah but actually you know if we were having those conversations at that initial point as you do then mate you know that could be making a massive difference to you know so many people in how they then approach their pregnancy and yeah, the things absolutely. they eat. I mean this all you know a lot of this I mean, it's not new to me, but it is still, I'm like, oh, yeah, of course. And that's because not really anything that they talk to us in much detail about over here, but it makes perfect sense. And of course, nutrition is going to be where it starts. Yeah. Uh, and it's not taught in medical school. They don't understand nutrition at all. Right. And so they don't, they're, they, the your provider doesn't understand it. So they're not going to be able to educate you about it because they don't understand. And even if you do fail the glucose test, they basically say, oh, go over here and talk to this person who knows about nutrition and they'll tell you what to eat. But by then you're in your third trimester and now you're labeled as yeah. you know, gestational diabetic. It's very different. You know, you've spent all these weeks and weeks of, you know, 27, 28 weeks of growing a baby with the high blood sugar it's a little more difficult to change. I mean, for sure you can change it, but it's it's something that it's should be addressed from the very beginning. Yeah. Um, so what else other than nutrition? Are there any other ways that people can, throughout their pregnancy, kind of maintain that low-risk label? Yeah, I think, I mean, obviously go with nutrition goes exercise. And um, we're not saying, you know, join a CrossFit gym or do anything like that. We're just saying go on a walk 30 to 40 minutes a day. And it's not a stroll. You're not like meandering through the park. You're walking a brisk walk um, where you actually feel like you're getting warm, gets your heart rate up, those kinds of things. It's super great for your over again, super good for your blood pressure, um, but also helps uh, your, your heart rate and um, burns through burns up that glucose. So you, it reduces your risk for diabetes yeah. and um, overall gets you ready for your birth. You can be more fit and ready to um, give birth the way that you want to. Um, I think paying attention to your baby's position in while you're pregnant, um, understanding too, that if your baby is head up at your anatomy scan around 20 weeks, you have an increased chance of having a baby that's head up at birth. It's a very, very, very small chance, but being aware of that. So um, in our practice, if a baby is head up at the 20-week ultrasound, we're just, again, educating the mom what it feels like to have the baby, the kicks, you know, lower versus higher. We teach them how to kind of understand where their baby is so that they're keyed into their baby's position. And if by 33 weeks, they are not head down, 
we're helping them understand different exercises and simple little things that don't cost money that can help your baby to rotate. Um, and then adding on acupuncture and uh, chiropractic and things like that, if we need to by about 36 weeks. Yeah. Cause yeah. I know in the medical model, they don't, they do an ultrasound at 36 weeks because the doctor can't really palpate. I don't know in the UK, I'm sure the midwives know how to do it, but yes, here do, the, yeah. the um, OBs don't know how to determine the baby's position. So um, you just get an ultrasound at 36 or 37 weeks and say, Oh, your baby's head up. We're going to schedule you for your C-section kind of thing too late. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we do, obviously the midwives do kind of check position themselves, but we do also, many places over here do a 36-week scan as well, which actually it was not, we didn't used to, we just used to have a 20-week scan and then that was that. Um, mm-hmm. But now we have often a 36-week scan, which does bring up some minor issues sometimes, which maybe necessarily don't need to be picked yes. up on. Yes, yes. Um, so it's not always the most helpful scan. But I get that for people, it's nice to go and have another chance to see your baby. But sometimes, yeah, it's a bit of a frustrating one because, things, yeah, little things get picked up on. Um, but also things like um, one of the things I always talk to people about is um, like posture, because particularly when trying to avoid having a back to back baby, because I know that posture can affect kind of where the baby sits in terms of yes, whether they're really back to back. Um, and we are very slouchy, aren't we? Like just generally, people slouch a lot and slouch when they yes. drive, slouch when they're sat. In well, and here in the, here in America, we have these big comfy couches. We can all just recline mm-hmm. and put our yeah. feet up and everything, you know, feet up on the coffee table and relax. Yeah. And that's exactly what creates, it's it's posterior presentation yeah. um, where the baby's back is lined up with your, baby's spine is lined up with your spine and the baby's basically looking face up. Yes. And we're, so we are educating our clients about that because while you're still considered now low risk, you you can have your baby with yeah, us, yeah. but it's going to create a longer, much longer and more painful labor. And so mm-hmm. we're trying to avoid that for our yeah. clients. We help them understand, yeah, don't slouch, sit on a ball, lean forward, anything that you can do, don't recline in a recliner, mm-hmm. any of those things that are going to, you know, encourage your baby to, you know, go in that back to back position. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I say I tend to say the same. And whenever I say on my courses, I always see people kind of (laughs) move, moving themselves and adjusting themselves like, oh, hang on a minute, I was slouching. They kind of become really aware that that's what they were doing, which, you know, we all do it. I do it as well. I I drive. So, yes. um, Okay, so we've got obviously diet exercise. Is there anything else that people can do to kind of maintain that? I think also um, preterm birth, you know, you have to be 37 weeks to have your baby in here in America with a midwife. Um, I think it's the same over there. Um, Yeah, I mean, you would have, you would have, um, you would still have a midwife, but you would be in, uh, I mean, (laughs) you can still, you can still, of course, give birth wherever you want here. Give birth at home if you want, but you would be, yeah, kind of going against uh medical advice um, yeah. so yes yeah, but in, if you were to go into a hospital still you would still make you still have a midwife there yeah so again preterm birth a lot of it is has to do with your nutrition um eating eating well avoiding that hypertension if you have really high blood pressure you're at risk for preeclampsia which can lead to preterm birth yeah. um we here in America also, well, at least in my practice, we're checking vitamin D levels. If your vitamin D is really, really low, it definitely significantly increases your risks of preterm birth. 
And I have found even in sunny California, almost everybody has low vitamin D. So in our practice, we have our clients supplementing. And I have seen a remarkable difference in my clients who typically have their babies really early going closer to term or to term when their vitamin, just by balancing their vitamin D. Yeah. So for um, UK people, we're definitely going to be deficient. <laughs> oh, 100% you are. Yes. <laughs> definitely. And the, the medical model here in America, they want it, They say anything over 30 is considered normal up to 100. And um, really, it needs to be closer to 60. Right. So 30 is the bottom of the barrel. And so you really want it to be closer to 60. So we have our clients uh, supplementing all through their pregnancy. Same with iodine. Um, most of us aren't getting enough um, sea food in our diets or mm-hmm. seaweeds or things like that and getting enough iodine and your thyroid balances all of your hormones throughout your pregnancy. I mean, for, for your whole life, but yeah. in pregnancy, especially it's so critical to have your hormones be balanced. So you're not having a preterm baby. So um, supplementing with iodine or having a, a, a prenatal that has iodine in it is really helpful to, su- to support your thyroid. Uh, because again, if your thyroid is off, it can put you at risk for preterm birth, but also significantly increases your risk for postpartum depression. So mm-hmm. if you have um, any thyroid antibodies in your system, which means basically that your thyroid is kind of attacking itself, uh, it's the one of the risks for autoimmune disease. Mm-hmm. Um, it significantly increases your risks for postpartum depression. So um, so we're checking all those things throughout your pregnancy. Iron, if your um, iron is low, you have, um, if, you're, if you're low in iron, you're significantly increased risk of bleeding during your birth. And then you also just feel exhausted and lethargic and you don't want to do anything. You can't prepare meals. You can't go for walks. You can't do all the things because you just want to take naps all the time. Yeah. So yeah. having um, good nutrients in your body is, is yeah. important. Folate is another one. Um, I think folate those should be addressed in the um, preconception mm-hmm. because you want to be taking folate. I mean, folate is found in a lot of foods yeah. and um, most of us have a decent amount of folate because we do eat a fairly balanced diet. But um, if you are low in folate, it significantly increases your risks for the um spina bifida and cleft palate and things like that, which are automatically going to put you into a higher risk category as well. So starting with folate and, um, and also just decreasing your toxic environment. Um, A lot of us also don't realize the different things that are in in our environment. We have so many more chemicals in our environment now than they did even 50 years ago. Yeah. Um, With formaldehyde and PCBs and, you know, perchlorate and different, like the plastics, all the plastics that are everywhere that are forever chemicals. We can't, once we get them in our body, we can't get them out. So um, being careful of the water that you drink, those little plastic water bottles that you buy everywhere are really handy. But if it yeah. sits in the sun and the, the plastic is leaching into your water, you're increasing your risk for autoimmune diseases. So wow. um, non-organic foods, it just all the the bombardment of toxins, little bits here and there, you know, your body can manage. But when it's an overload, um, you're not having organic foods, you're not having, you know, organic meats, um, you cook on those lovely nonstick pans, there's chemicals that make the pan nonstick, and it goes into your food every time you eat. 
Um, All those kinds of things. So helping to detox your system before you're pregnant will also help developmentally help your baby to um, be healthy and low risk. Yeah, it's just all like education, isn't it? It's just starting kind of right from the beginning, really, and and like relearning everything that we're so used to. Um, And it's overwhelming. I feel honestly, I feel it's overwhelming to feel like you have to do all these or like, you know, you're you're fearful now, but. But I think it's real, you know, realistic to understand that, you know, there's a lot of things in our life that are very convenient, but yeah. they have come at a cost of more and more chemicals in our system yeah. and in our homes and in our meals. So just understanding and detoxing some of those things before yeah. you think about getting pregnant. And, you know, you don't have to do everything, but just being mindful of the impact that some of it has and making some small changes. Like it is, yes. yeah, a lot. And and also not just this side. Like I, I was talking to somebody a while ago about um, like pelvic health and doing their pelvic floor, and we were discussing the same thing that it's such a lot. Like pregnant women are like, I've got to do all this stuff. All Inundated, the time. yes, it's a lot. But if you are kind of just aware of these things and why they're important, and do small things, you know, like I said, you don't have to do everything all at once, but small yes. changes. Yes, they're gonna, you know, it's going to make a difference, but it is, it's a lot, you know, and I, you know, when you're pregnant, you have nine months, 10 months and, you know, there's a lot to learn. And we always say all this stuff you should be learning before you're pregnant, but it, you know, it, yeah. it's one of those things that people are busy to learning our jobs and, you yeah. know, being a grown up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, go it's, it's hard sometimes, isn't it? But, um, is there anything else kind of um, that you would say for people who want to kind of maintain that label? Yeah, I think those are, those are the biggies. I mean, like I said, it um, starting preconception to, you know, kind of detoxing your body a bit. And then um, from the very beginning, getting used to the idea of, of incorporating, you know, the 80 to hundred grams of protein in your diet daily, um, getting enough healthy fats, avoiding, you know, the non-healthy fats and um, doing a little bit of exercise, honestly, like over in Europe, you guys walk way more, uh, which is great. Uh, but here in America, we have to schedule in time to go for our walks and do our exercise. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, basically, you know, make sure that you are getting enough of the right supplements with for your to support your thyroid and um, iron and things like that. I honestly, it doesn't hurt to speak or even just reading online, like yeah. basically foods that help to, you know, incorporate more of these nutrients that you need into your diet. So you're not necessarily having to take supplements is helpful. Yeah, yeah definitely. Um, so for so those people who are kind of labeled as high risk, because I'm sure there will be um, people that are listening that are. Yeah. Um, what can they do to help kind of make their birth as smooth as possible like what you know they've got this label and as we said like once you are categorized as that it's hard to reverse it back Mm -hmm. you know what what ways can they kind of still make it you know as smooth as smooth as possible I want to give them some um you know some nice kind of yeah I think first and foremost is um, understanding like why are you high considered high risk, and then um, going to some really good sources on and educa- being educated on what exactly your risk is. 
Um, and speaking to your provider, ideally your provider is going to be helping you understand what your actual risks are. Um, because again, like you could have this label of over 35 high risk and are you really at risk? Probably not. Um, uh, a breech baby again, I think midwives in the UK deliver breech babies. So um, here in America, a yeah. lot of states, you can have a breech baby. So it's a variation of normal. If you want to be able to have a baby that's breech, you should be allowed to make that choice. But again, you know, understanding what your actual risks are so that you can then um, advocate for yourself or feel safe in making the choices for interventions that you want to make. So if you want to schedule your C-section, that's perfectly acceptable because you don't want to have the risks of having a vaginal birth. You want to schedule um, a cesarean for a breech baby or a cesarean for twins or any of those things. Just understanding what your risks are by choosing a cesarean because a cesarean comes with risks. Yeah. And they so often doesn't get talked about in Never the same does way it get talked that, about. Yeah, yes. We kind of talk yeah. so much about the risks of not doing it, but we don't talk. And it's the same with like induction and just generally interventions. We don't yes. talk about the risks of doing it. And they are, you know, they can be quite high and they should definitely be considered in all 100%. Cases. Yes. When you have one C section, I mean, the risks to the mom are significant, but then if it's your first child and you want to have more children, yeah. are you looking at having two C-sections, three C-sections? Yeah. Your risk for maternal mortality goes significantly higher when you've had, you know, two yeah. C-sections or three um, having the repeat C-sections. Yeah. So just understanding those risks, I think is really important. Um, and asking lots of questions so that you feel like you are being educated, um, going to, you know, finding your sources online for um, that really well, you know, balance the information well and not fear tactics and fear mongering, but balancing yeah. the, the um, ICANN website talks is, a, is all about, you know, having a vaginal birth after cesarean and, um educating women on, you know, that they have choice and, yeah. you know, what their actual risks are. Um, yeah, I think uh, getting enough support so mm -hmm. that you are feeling like you aren't in this all by yourself, um, having, you know, getting a doula or things like that, mm -hmm. talking to your provider, if you are for sure going to be having a scheduled C-section or having an induction, um, having choice in how that happens. You know, do you need to be scheduled for your induction at 37 weeks? Can you push it to 40 weeks? And, you know, any of those things, you know, we have clients in our practice that do risk out. Uh, we aren't allowed to deliver breech babies and we can do everything possible to try to get them to turn. And if they don't turn, we say, well, that baby wants to be born that way. And yeah. then they're looking at either finding a provider, like we can refer them to a provider that might do vaginal breech or scheduling their C-section, but they don't necessarily have to be scheduled at 39 weeks for their C-section. They can be scheduled at 40 weeks, as long as they're understanding that if they go into labor before their scheduled C-section, now they're looking at a little bit more of a stressful cesarean. Yeah. But if you understand those risks and choose that for yourself anyway, that should be your prerogative. Exactly. I mean, that's it, isn't it? You know, I would think we are adults, like we should, these choices are ours and they don't always feel like they are like sometimes you know people don't realize I think there's a figure that I mean it might be a bit old now but it was like 90% of us don't realize we have choices when it comes to childbirth like 90% yeah. maybe that's gone down a tiny bit now hopefully um yes. but you know we don't uh, the vast majority of people don't realize so of course you know you kind of 
get told, oh, your baby's breached. This, you know, this is what you should do. Uh-huh. And we do it because and we don't not. understand. Yeah, we don't understand the, the, the potential risks of that thing that we're doing. Um, mm-hmm. And are then disappointed or, you know, traumatized from what potentially has then happened. And it's just all of that. You're so right. This is what I always try and stress to people. It doesn't actually matter at the end of the day what you choose to do as long as you are choosing right. to do it. There's no right or wrong way exactly. to have your baby as long yes. as you are the one that is informed and being listened to and you are making those choices. Then, then they will be the right choices for you. Which is 100%. Really yes. If you're, if you're scheduled for an induction and you feel that that is the best thing for you, great. Go yeah. ahead with your induction, but just ask questions. What yeah. can I expect? What medications will you use for the induction? Will I have to have a urinary catheter? Do I have to stay in bed? Do I have to wear a monitor the whole time? Can I have a doula? Just can I eat or drink in labor? How long do you expect it to take? All of those things yeah. are great questions to ask so that you feel informed about the answers. And you can then yeah. think it through before the actual process and realize, okay, I'm going to not be able to eat until the baby comes out. So um, you know, how do I mentally adjust to that? Yeah. That kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, those, yeah, some of those things that you were saying are things that I don't think people would even think about, like having a catheter and like not being, perhaps not being able to move around, being monitored all the time. Like there are things that people might not think come along with, you know, that. 100%. Yep. And induction. And then it's surprising when that happens. And then you suddenly feel very out of control of what's happening. 100%. So, yep. yeah, when you, yeah, yeah, when you're choosing an induction, you're giving away a large portion of your control of your birth. Yeah. Um, and again, if you're high risk, that's you, sometimes those things are out of your control. Um, when you choose to have an epidural, you give up all 100% control over your birth because now you are a patient monitored by an anesthesiologist and the OB and the nurses, and you have all kinds of increased risk. And a lot of people don't understand that 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 you know those two go together so just asking the questions ahead of time helps you feel informed and like you said then you don't feel like you have a traumatic birth you feel like oh yes they said that i was probably going to have to have a catheter or oh yes i was going to have to wear the monitor the whole time do they have wireless monitors if you have to wear the monitor the whole time are you going to be stuck next to the machine or can you choose a wireless one so you can at least walk around your room walk to the bathroom without you know hooking everything those kinds of things Again, you just feel like you have more choice and then you feel more empowered and then you feel like, oh, I had control over my birth experience. It wasn't as traumatic as I thought it might be. Yeah, exactly. And that's, yeah, at the end of the day, that kind of how you feel about it is what matters, isn't it? Um, Well, thank you so much. Is there anything else that you want to add on to anything we've talked about? I don't think so. Um, I think, honestly, like we've covered it really, really well. We've had some great questions. So, yeah. Perfect. So where can people find you? Like, so for anyone that is located in your area, like where, where can they go to find you? (laughs) So we are, like I said, based in Silicon Valley, California in um, Los Gatos, and we have another birth center in Morgan Hill. And um, you can find me at casanatal.com. It's C-A-S-A dash N-A-T-A-L.com. I'll link um, it. I'll link it in the notes anyway. Oh, uh, thanks. And then also Instagram. We are also on Facebook. We do, I do all women's health for um, the functional side. So you don't have to be pregnant. I do a lot of preconception, um, which is, you know, we can do virtually. 
so yeah, a lot of that kind of stuff, uh, preconception all through pregnancy and, and then birth, and then really, really delving into the postpartum side, helping our, our clients, um, with their postpartum for the their three months afterwards, and then all of women's health into, you know, their aging years. Wow. Amazing. So yeah, lots of, lots of people to kind of go and have a look at and find information about lots of support for women, which is great. We were finding that, you know, we have, we build such a great relationship with our clients. We always just love them so much. And so we feel sad when their six week visit comes and we don't see them anymore. And they were feeling the same way. And a lot of our clients, you know, because they're choosing alternative healthcare have never seen an actual doctor. And so they're kind of like, who do I see now? Where do I go for all my, you know, my questions? And so that's what made me choose to get into the functional medicine side, because then I can continue to take care of them. I mean, we do all regular women's wellness, you know, pap smears and all that kind of stuff. Um, But again, nowadays, the guidelines are you don't even have to have a pap smear every year, you do it every three to five years, depending on your risk category. So yeah, yeah. yeah, this way, I get to see my clients a little more often, ideally, if they're they're, uh, not too unwell, but we can keep them in the healthy and well for for their whole lifetime. Yeah. And when you've been through that experience with people with having, you know, babies and seeing people have babies, you do have that bond, don't you? You never forget, you know, the people that were there at your birth and things like that. So it's nice to be able to continue that on further. Yeah, we love it. Thank you so much. It's been really interesting to talk to you. And thank you for, yeah, taking the time. We've been kind of trying to sort out our time difference because we've got, obviously, you're California, you know, in the UK. I think that is uh, the, you know, the biggest time difference, isn't it, between um, the US and here. So, yeah, yes, we've been, um, yeah, trying to sort it out, but we've done it. We did it. And, yeah, thank you for, for taking the time to come and talk to us. It's been great. Yes, it was. Um, honestly, I've enjoyed it very much. Thank you. Thank you. A big, big thank you again to Melissa for joining us on the podcast and for sharing her wisdom with us all. Hopefully you guys found that really interesting. I know I did. I've had two pregnancies, but, you know, even I learned a lot from that as well. I found it really useful. So um, I hope you guys did as well. I will leave all of her details in the info box so that you can go and give her a follow. And obviously, if you are local to her, then how very lucky you are. And, um, you know, feel free to to check that out as well. Just in another kind of quick uh, bit of news, if you have made it this far into the podcast, then I am open to bookings for my doula support. So um, virtual birth, antenatal, postnatal doula support is what I'm offering. And yeah, obviously I'm based in Essex in the UK. So I'm actually just outside London. I'm not too far. So I'm going to be covering mainly Essex in terms of kind of in-person doula support. But I am also offering virtual doula support, uh, in which case we can be based. You can be based anywhere. Doesn't doesn't make any difference to uh, where you are based. But I am offering virtual doula support. There's been some recent research into virtual support, which shows that it is almost as beneficial as having an in-person doula, which is obviously incredible and amazing. So if you feel like you would like any sort of extra support going into your birth, I'm here for you. You can contact me and we can have a chat and see how we can work together. So I'll leave again the links for that are below. I've also got my courses. Please do check those out as well, my hypnobirthing courses. And also, again, if you're enjoying the podcast, please do rate and review. I always appreciate that. And I'll be back in two weeks' time with a brand new episode. So I'll speak to you then. Bye.